Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lori Cox-Hahn and Caroline Heldman, who are editors of Madam President, question mark, Gender and Politics on the Road to the White House. This was published in 2020 by Lynn Reiner Press. And full disclosure, I have a co-authored chapter in this book, um, but we are going to talk about the book as a whole and not my chapter. Um, <laughs> and I'd like to wa- welcome Caroline and Lori to the podcast and ask them to tell us a little bit about this book and how they came to this project and about themselves as well. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the New Books Podcast. Hello. Thank you, Lily. Thanks for having us on. Well, um, I guess it's I'll my start. Pleasure. Go ahead. Yeah, I guess start. I guess I'll start and, and give you a little bit of background on not just this book, but the work that Caroline and I have been doing on this topic for quite some time. Um, I'm basically interested in the topic of electing a woman president really since graduate school. So it's been since the late 1990s, uh, and. The very first time Caroline and I met, it was at a, a conference, the Western Political Science Association, and I'm not sure I remember the year, but I think it was 2005. And our very first conversation was about, you know, the idea that uh, so many people had already decided that basically Hillary Clinton was going to be the first woman president. It was going to happen in 2008. And we both just thought that sounded a little bit too simplistic and missing a lot of the things that would happen along the way. So we started talking about putting together an edited volume. And the first one with Lynn Reiner was called Rethinking Madam President, uh, published in 2007, I think. And so we decided that we wanted to come back to that topic after Hillary Clinton lost the presidency in 2016. And we thought it was a really good time to take a look at all of the issues that we included in, in the book, all of the different facets that go into, you know, presidential election and, and what had improved and what had not improved at that point for women seeking the White House. And so that's that was really kind of the backstory of how we got this started a few years ago. And just to follow up on that, um, we, both of us were very much in agreement that it was too optimistic. Uh, And uh, we believed that the reason that uh, fellow political scientists uh, were being so optimistic is that they simply were unaware of the research on the issue. And and there wasn't much done. I will say that um, our 2005 piece um, on Elizabeth Dole uh, around the, the 2000 election, she brought only a skirt. That piece, I think, was a first systematic analysis of media coverage um, using a content analysis. But uh, Khan and others uh, for you know the better part of two decades had been writing about the barriers to uh, women running for the presidency. And I, th- I think even today, there's not a lot of knowledge in the field and certainly not outside of the field that Prior to Hillary Clinton, 12 women had made very serious bids, national bids, uh, party nominees, that that sort of thing, uh, national press attention, and their candidacies had gone nowhere. And in fact, Elizabeth Dole was the first uh, female candidate for the presidency who was treated uh, like a legitimate candidate by the press. And even she was really beaten up with negative coverage and coverage that focused on her dress and appearance. And so uh, this history generally wasn't known. And I think Lori and I have really dedicated ourselves to making sure that, um, you know, that we continue to write on this because so few people tend to under really understand the barriers to a woman getting this, this position. 
And of course, I am a student uh, of your work because it is excellent. And as you know, it's it's sort of in this area of women in politics, which I also do my own work on. But I wanted to ask you specifically about this book, the follow up to the rethinking Madam President, because this one has a question mark in the title. Um, and as you're, you as you noted, you know, you you said that you thought your colleagues were too optimistic. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we have this question of what are the barriers? What is the research that you pulled together in this volume um, that came out in 2020, but, you know, sort of started to um, get pulled together after the election um, where Hillary Clinton was the nominee, but lost the general election. Um, what did you find as you were recruiting chapters and thinking about, you know, what the research should look like? Well, I think that one of the, the issues I really wanted to address with this new volume was just the fact that this was the post-Hillary Clinton era because so much attention had been focused on her up to that point. And I think that there was an assumption, especially that, that she would win, obviously, especially in 2016 against Donald Trump. And so then we could start looking at, oh, what does it mean to have the first woman president? And so the fact that she lost still suggested there was maybe some some work to be done and that maybe if you looked past this just one candidate, you could see some of the more complex, nuanced issues out there that women candidates face. So I really wanted, and I know, you know, Caroline and I together, when we talked through why we wanted to do this book, we really wanted to reassess and say, okay, now what? And I think a lot of the, the chapters really um, looked past the, you know, both the good and bad that came from Hillary Clinton's two presidential campaigns and, and gave us a sense of, okay, here are the issues where we really need to work moving forward. And Lily, your chapter uh, with Linda Beale, I think was uh, a, a relatively new contribution in terms of um, the field, right? It's something that you've written on extensively and, and Lori and I have used your work where you talk about the fact that seeing a, a black male president uh, in numerous TV shows and films over the years, normalize that. And that um, we were behind in terms of seeing that normalized for women, but really focusing on on the influence of pop culture and how that has just simply made it more, you know, in, in the minds of many voters, more accept, more acceptable to have a, women, a woman running for that office and in the White House. And also, you know, we used to, prior to, to, to Donald Trump, we used to have to convince folks that masculinity was a really big part of running for the presidency and, and holding the office um, and that leadership was very masculinized. And I think that uh, Meredith Conroy's chapter on masculinity in the presidency uh, landed much more directly because we had this kind of obvious example in front of us where we've never had such a hyper-masculine contest, right? Where you actually have, uh, you know, hand size coming up in a in a presidential debate. Um, so that was far more obvious than in previous years. And then I contributed a chapter uh, specifically on um, the women's movement and you know the the largest single day protest in US history. Um, the day after Donald Trump's uh, inauguration, and what role that, what role his presidency and hypermasculinity played in really mobilizing um, women and some men uh, in, in the form of a new social movement, and how sexual violence played into that, and the Me Too movement. So, um, I think the the social political context of uh, the 2016 election really was foreshadowed what was coming in the 2020 election. 
And I wanted to ask a, a little bit about the chapter that you wrote, Caroline, in terms of thinking not only about the the women's movement and the marches that sort of followed the election of Donald Trump. But can you talk a little bit about the research that you looked at um, and what you concluded in terms of the role of something like the Me Too movement that sort of spun through this entire period where we have this hyper-masculine president um, who's also in front of our faces every single day um, on Twitter or in the media. Um, And then we start to have this cavalcade of cases of high-profile men who are losing their jobs and positions because of people who have finally sort of said, I can't take it anymore. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that fits into, you know, sort of thinking about electing a woman president or in the most recent case, perhaps a woman vice president? Certainly. Um, So Donald Trump has uh, given us some gifts, right? This is how I like to see them, that he has actually made. So we we know that America is a profoundly racist country with high levels of racial resentment and white supremacy. And he has actually brought that to the surface. And so we can address it. um, And however painful that may be. So I'm looking, you know, the silver lining here. But I would argue the same thing is happening with sexual violence and sexism, that he, I think, especially young women thought that we had come much further than we had in terms of of gender roles and gender respect. Um, And Donald Trump's presidency made it very clear that you could have 23 allegations of sexual violence Um, And it didn't matter. You could be elected to the highest office in the land. And in fact, that a certain, you know, number of people in the population um, would, it it elevated his status for them. It was a way for him to assert his masculinity, um, these allegations of sexual violence. And so um, I write about how, you know, the Me Too movement um, culminated all at the same time. And I don't think that's happenstance. I think it had a lot to do with people kind of opening their eyes to what was right in front of them, which is the fact that, you know, we live in a rape culture where we don't take rape seriously as a crime. It's the only crime where we put the victim on trial. And how does this play into ideas about what it means to be a real man who has a lot of sexual conquests? How did that make uh, that? How did that play into Trump's masculine bravado? And why is it that we're still defining manhood in terms uh, you know, in in implied uh, terms of sexual violence. Um, and so, you know, Donald Trump's presidency um, really gave us a front row seat to just how uh, overt sexism can be. Uh, but again, I think it's just drawing out things that are already there. It's just making them more obvious. And, and so in terms of the research in general that came through in the book, I mean, as you noted, um, I did some work with Linda Beal on popular culture in the presidency and Meredith Conroy, um, who also has an excellent book on masculinity and the presidency also talks about that on the campaign trail. I was wondering in terms of the chapters as they were coming in and as you're reading them, because you're also both scholars of this, deep scholars of this, and you've done so much work yourselves and you've read so widely. What was surprising in terms of the research that people were finding conclusions that you thought, oh, that's not what I expected or, oh, that's exactly what I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll address that a little bit. It, you know, We really wanted to, just like with the first book, but especially with this one, we really wanted to do a a state of things in terms of all of the different components, not only um, of an individual candidate 
and her campaign running for president, but how were women doing overall across the board politically? So, you know, we were looking at issues of media, pop culture, you know, uh, representation and the executive branch, um, you know, uh, policy issues, political parties, uh, foreign policy, money, you know, um, uh, Victoria Farmeyer's chapter on on money, which was an update for her from the the previous Rethinking Madam President volume. I think her research showed, and I and I think some of us who pay attention to this kind of sense that's where it was going is that money wasn't really the factor that I think 20, 25 years ago people thought it would be for women candidates. I mean, we've for for a long time we now we've assumed or falsely assumed, I think, for a long time that women couldn't fundraise as well as men in politics. Well, now we know that's not true. And in some cases, women are, you know, even better at fundraising than than male colleagues. And so, you know, the data in Victoria's chapter really showed that, that, that we really had made progress with this. And that wasn't the thing that was stopping women from getting elected to, to you know, higher office. Um, you know, and, and I'll just thrown to that my chapter in the book, the introductory chapter really took the macro view. So wanted to really say, okay, what really is the, the state of things right now? And so I also addressed the issue of, you know, we need to elect a woman president, or, sorry, woman vice president also, because that will really, you know, change things up in terms of finally breaking through that, that one of those last gender barriers. And so I think that, you know, now that we do have a woman president, we can, we can learn a lot about her campaign and how she got to that point and what that means for women in, in political leadership positions moving forward. And Laura, you just, uh, a Freudian slip there, you just referred to Kamala Harris as president. So oh, did uh, I? Oh, good, on, good on you. <laughs> and I would just, <laughs> I would build on that with, uh, you know, Brian Frederick, Laurel uh, Elder and Barbara Burrell uh, did a chapter on first spouses and what it's going to mean uh, when we get our first uh, partner who is male, right? And now we have that. And I think, Lily, what was um, what was surprising about that chapter is they anticipated that there wouldn't be much pushback, uh, depending upon who, who held the position, um, that they would probably be just fine in recreating that office. Um, and I think that's certainly what, what's happening so far with Doug Imhoff, that he is um, taking it in, in stride and certainly will be shifting the office, you know, of the first gentleman, uh, hopefully at some point to be called the first partner, wouldn't that be great? But he's shifting that office um, in in ways um, that only perhaps a man holding that position can, but he's also making sure um, that he's highly supportive of um, his spouse in terms of how it appears to the public. And that's that is one of the arguments that was made in the chapter, um, that this, you know, it would be a delicate balance, but but because men already, um, because men are, are seen as legitimate in basically any position they hold, that that the first uh, gentleman would be fine. And 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 you know we we see that he apparently taught some of his first classes just recently at Georgetown Law School, um, and he seems he seems to be weathering it all right um, from everything that I can tell. Um, I wanted to return to this question also about the the role of masculinity in our thinking about the the presidency because this is something that I myself have spent a lot of time thinking about and some time writing about and I know you have the the question that Karen Holt worked on on sex gender and leadership in the executive branch as one of the the topics and of course Meredith's Meredith's um, 
uh, chapter as well. But I wanted to ask a little bit about the office itself in terms of, you know, barriers to entry um, and the masculine nature of the presidency. Well, I I would start by saying that, you know, I'm not sure that a lot of people are paying attention to what a big deal it is that there's finally a, a woman in the position of secretary of the treasury, because, you know, part of those four inner branch positions in the cabinet, treasury being one of them, uh, it's significant that a woman has finally broken through there because, you know, we've had women attorney generals um, and, you know, the next big thing will be a, a woman as defense secretary. And we've had a woman secretary of state also. So having, you know, an experienced woman, someone who is a former Fed chair uh, in that position, I think is important in terms of the knowledge and experience she brings to the position, but just symbolically, that that is a powerful position. The economy is such an important issue right now. I mean, it always is, even when, you know, the economy is relatively good, but certainly it's it's one that is getting a lot of attention right now for good reason. And so I think that, you know, the small progress we can make in areas like that are significant because for someone, you know, like me who studies the presidency and who's been looking at, you know, these numbers for women in the cabinet over the last 30, 40 years, I mean, it's time to make much more progress in that. And I think that with the Biden administration, we're, we're seeing a, a big push in that direction. And I think it's important. I would add to that, that uh, early on when we were studying the presidency and women in the presidency, um, a lot of the research was coming from lower offices. And I think it took the field a bit to discover that executive offices are different from legislative offices and lower level offices. And the office of the presidency actually is really difficult to predict or or, or uh, determine what's going to happen with a female candidate, especially you know if you're looking at it intersectionally, for example, um, you know female candidates of color, because it is such a unique position. And we um, we write in the book about how. Um, the office of the presidency is really the prototypical citizen, right? And when you ask most most Americans who the prototypical citizen is, um, it's a white male. He's male and he is white. And so the further you get away from notions of the prototypical citizen, the less legitimate you are as a candidate. And in fact, uh, I would argue based upon analysis of Barack Obama's presidency, the less legitimate you are in that position and so, or are seen as less legitimate. And I think it's an underlying bias that we don't talk enough about, um, but the office is uniquely masculinized um, because it's seen as you know the titular leader of the free world. And we know that we think of um, leadership in very masculinized male terms. And so having that office be the epitome of leadership and be the prototypical citizen um, and and have those, you know, have it to have it be so heavily aligned with both of those dimensions uh, means that it is it's really difficult uh, to imagine a woman who can get into that office and not be held to uh, just an impossible double standard. Um, and we talk about this as you know the kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. That in order to be seen as properly 
um, properly masculine for the presidency because the requirements for for masculine leadership are so high um, that a woman would would have to uh, immediately violate gender norms, right? So it would, it would be held against her that she wasn't feminine enough. And we see this with Sarah Palin. We see this with Hillary Clinton. The ways in which they are beaten up in you know profoundly gendered ways. Um, we know that women for this office um, are are held to different standards. And the moment uh, a woman of color gets close to that office, we will see uh, an intersectional race, gender bias um, that has everything to do with how we think of the prototypical citizen and how we think of the leadership. And so we have recently elected somebody who sort of embodies the prototypical citizen in Joe Biden. Um, But we do have, as you both have noted, and as we've all sort of taken in over the last week or two in particular, that the vice president is now being embodied by a woman who is both Black and South Asian. So in terms of the scholarship on this, where is Kamala Harris going to take our imagining um, of that office? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying I think, um, you know, my Freudian slip probably came from the fact that a lot of people recently have asked me, so, okay, we have our first woman vice president. When are we going to get our first woman president? And my response, I'm, I'm very, you know, pragmatic about things. I said, well, you know, there's there's a chance we already elected our first woman president because we also elected in Joe Biden, the oldest president ever. Um, so, you know, whether she would succeed to the office or whether she will be the heir apparent going into 2024 if Joe Biden does not run for a second term. I mean, it really greatly increases her odds of becoming president. Uh, And so I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure on her uh, to, you know, already be trying out for the job in, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, the advantage that she has is that she's, she's a skilled politician. She's good in that sense, but she doesn't have a lot of experience because she hadn't been in the Senate that long. So she, she really has to, um, you know, if, if we want someone in, in the office, which a lot of Americans did this time in terms of Joe Biden and his experience, um, then she's, she does have some catching up to do and learning on the job day to day. And I think the biggest challenge for her is to show the American public that if the time comes that she could step into the role. I mean, every vice president has that pressure, but I think that she does even more so right now. I think Lori brings up a, a great point that I think we, we all expect, whoever we is, the experts, <laughs> expect that uh, that Joe Biden is, because he said so, that he is paving the way for her leadership, whether that means he steps aside before the end of his term, whether or not that means he throws uh, his considerable weight behind her. But I think it's important to note that when we were thinking, when folks were thinking about electability, um, they kept going back to Joe Biden and, and even Pete judge, right? They kept going back to the white men. And there's a reason that that is the case. We know that there is a price to be paid, a penalty for being a candidate of color and running for the office. And there's a penalty for being a woman and running for the office. And in a year like 2020, I think there were a lot of Democrats who were, uh, we know from from exit polls and research since, they were concerned about, uh, you know, the about electability. In fact, prioritize electability over other substantive issues. And and just to point out, to, to reiterate, when we think of electability, we think of white men who don't have to pay that penalty. Um, and I think that we saw the, the penalty that uh, Kamala Harris 
pays as a woman of color during the primary. Um, I recently did a, a piece for the American Sociological Association that unpacked how she was framed and how she was talked about during the primary and then into the general election. And the thing that struck me, I think the moment that struck me the most about the double standard was the vice presidential debate and how she, her demeanor had to be, uh, you know, she would, she was very carefully not tripping the stereotype of uh, the angry black woman, um, but she also, you know, couldn't be seen as, you know, the gender stereotypes of being, um, you know, less independent or, or being um, submissive. So she had some very fine lines to walk, and she walked them. Um, and she, it was noted that she smiled a lot, and you know, was uh, very gracious in her remarks. And I, I just, in that moment, imagine Mike Pence smiling as much as Kamala Harris did during that debate. Um, it would seem strange and it would seem absurd. And I think that moment really highlighted the challenge, challenges that are unique to being a woman of color and running even close to, to the presidency. Um, and and the, the book itself, you know, talks about barriers that we think exist, barriers that we once had that existed, but are perhaps not as much of a barrier anymore, like money raising, fundraising. Um, can you briefly sort of summarize what the barriers are that most people think exist for women running for president? And what are the barriers that exist given the research that you both have done and what's in the book itself? I think that, yeah, there, there are some barriers that people think still exist um, that don't, but I think that there are some barriers that get overlooked. And, and you know, I, I think one of the things, one of the most important things for me, and, and this is hard to quantify, but it's just that the lack of women in higher office, whether it's gubernatorial positions or, you know, prominent leadership positions within the federal government, I think that that, that has um, just fed into the idea for a lot of people that, you know, women aren't in these positions. They don't have, there aren't enough to really uh, look at in a candidate pool when you get into the election. And so I think that the changes coming with a woman vice president and more prominent women and throughout the executive branch, or even just how many, you know, White House correspondents now for major news organizations are women. I mean, just seeing more women in these positions I think will make a difference, whether hopefully more than symbolically, but I think it will will help move this along in terms of, yeah, of course a woman can get elected to any of these positions. I would say that the the barriers that don't exist are generally structural um, in the sense that the political parties, if, if you're running for the presidency uh, and really are, are a legitimate contender, um, you will likely be able to gather the resources that you need, the party uh, will be behind you uh, as well as a lot of major donors. And I know that's that's kind of part of getting that far, but once you get into that echelon, uh, it's a pretty even playing field in terms of resources. Um, I, I think the, the double standards that still exist um, are that scandals fall differently for women candidates. So for example, um, you know, Hillary Clinton's husband's um, sex, uh, sexual scandals, which, you know, I, frankly, I think he's, he's got, I, I would deem, um, them sexual violence, uh, but setting that, you know, not setting that aside to dismiss it, but setting it aside because it's not Hillary Clinton. Um, her husband's, 
uh, sexual violence or allegations of sexual violence were held against her more than Donald Trump's actual allegations of sexual violence, right? And so um, scandals fall differently. Hillary Clinton getting as much scandal coverage, for example, as Donald Trump during the 2016 election is kind of remarkable given uh, the difference in, in terms of fodder for scandals um, and the dress and appearance that, that women still have to, um, are, are still held to. Hillary Clinton talked about this, uh, I believe in her 2008 bid where she said, I have to wake up an hour earlier. Um, it's certainly the case, right? Where, where women's dress and appearance matters a lot more to voters in ways that I think they're not necessarily aware of. And the moment at which a candidate is sexualized or you know, is uh, a female candidate is too attractive, um, it's held against her. We view her as less competent. And in the case of Sarah Palin with a, a one experiment that was done, we care less about her as a person. We dehumanize uh, women who are sexualized. So I think um, that the double standard of having to be uh, physically attractive uh, in order to be seen as a legitimate candidate and then having that held against you as an issue. And then the double standard of leadership, you know, the where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't in terms of, of being properly masculine and properly feminine. And these are all pretty big barriers when you think about the fact that they're amorphous, but they very much influence how a candidate is perceived. And it's not like a, a voter is going to say, oh, I don't like her because of X. They're just going to say, mm, you know, she doesn't do it for me. And in this in this regard, also along with those barriers, does is there a breakdown across party lines with regard to some of these um, sort of more amorphous barriers that you found in your own research? Well, I think the numbers show certainly that the Republican Party is really lagging behind in terms of electing women. Um, you know, they had a little bit of progress and. 2018 and 2020, uh, but there's a stark difference between the, the percentages, the number of women on the Democratic side, the number of women on the Republican side, and, and I think that that needs to be addressed. I mean, a couple of the most prominent women in the Republican Party, I would say, you know, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins are, you know, marginalized within their own party because they, they are more moderate, they're more reasonable, they they don't always follow the party line, and they certainly weren't always in, in line with the Trump presidency. So, I think that 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 is a, a bigger burden on the Republican side right now um, to to find a place within that party. So I think there's definitely work that needs to be done. And in general, Lily, we know there's a, a, a party difference in terms of the folks who are uh, upset or afraid of a woman being in the White House. And, you know, we get around this in lots of tricky ways as political scientists because folks won't actually say uh, what they would, you know, that they won't admit this bias. Um, but it's about 15% for, for Republicans. Um, and it's about 8% for Democrats, which is a sizable chunk of the population. And this is, of course, not an actual candidate, but rather a generic candidate. Um, but the bias is, is pretty high in both parties. And I think the most, uh, the, the most telling data that came out of the 2020 election, where, where you have the, you know, the more female candidates in the Democratic primary than at any point in history. Um, and we know that the more um, different types of sexism, whether it was traditional sexism or modern sexism that a Democratic voter held, um, that the less support they had for uh, a woman candidate. So this I, it's certainly partisan in that Republicans tend to have more bias, a slightly more bias against a female president. But the, the numbers in both parties are, I would say, remarkably high. And so 
now that we have um, Kamala Harris and now that we have had um, a standard bearer in a woman um, in, of Hillary Clinton in 2016, um, I want to know what the two of you are working on to help us understand the terrain and the politics of a woman as president. Well, I can I can tell you that. Um, so I have a, a textbook on the presidency uh, with my co-author, Diane Heath, with Oxford University Press. And we are just starting work on a third edition of that. And one of the things that we are doing is um, because one, it, it will help market the book, but two, because it's important and we should be doing it regardless is really going through and um, adding elements of much more in terms of uh, gender and race ethnicity throughout the text. And I think that from a textbook standpoint, um, it's really important for us to get you know, students thinking about these questions, the things that, that we've been studying all of these years. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that with Kamala Harris as vice president and, um, you know, all of the progress that is being made, that we just start to normalize the idea of women in positions of political power more so than before. You know, I can, thinking about where we're at in, in 2021 with, with this question, I, I guess I feel, um, optimistic and frustrated at the same time that, you know, wow, we have a woman vice president and, and all of these women going into these really powerful positions um, across the board. And then I think, wow, it's 2021. It took this long, really. It seems like we've been talking about this forever. Um, and, and for, you know, for my career, I feel like we have, and I think that it's, it's really time we make a little bit more progress. And I'd like to see it on both sides of the aisle too, because I think that having um, a diversity of experience as women will really, you know, make a difference in terms of governing and policymaking in this country. And Lily, I'm working on a book called Intersectionality and the Presidency that looks at how uh, conceptions of the prototypical citizen and uh, race, gender, sexuality, age, disability, and body size have influenced uh, the presidency, both in terms of candidates and leadership. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, long overdue to be looking at how, um, how who we think is appropriate to hold the office of the presidency is really a reflection of democratic values and a limitation on democratic values. Um, it, so, for example, you know, the bias against women and bias against people of color and, and the price that you pay if you're a woman of color running for that office um, means that, uh, you know, it's not it's not really a democratic office. And what that means for the American psyche, what that tells us about how we think about democracy and inclusion um, and politics and participation. So um, I'm about halfway through that that book. And uh, the 2020 election has been incredibly rich in terms of, of analysis because of the sheer diversity and variety of candidates who ran on the Democratic side. Well, I look forward to speaking with both of you when these books come out, including the textbook, Lori, when you and Diane finish the third edition. Sure. Um, and I was delay I'm delighted to speak with you today about Madam President question mark, gender and politics on the road to the White House. Thank you, Caroline Heldman and Lori Cox-Hahn for joining me today on the New Books Network. And I'm wondering where somebody can pick up a copy of this book. I assume it's available at the Lynn Reiner website. Are there any brick and mortar stores with some, um, you know, sort of virtual portals that you would like to give a shout out to? 
Caroline? Uh, well, that, <laughs> I'm thinking during the pandemic, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, um, you know, your, your local bookstore, if you can possibly support them, um, either will, will have, you know, a copy that's, uh, easy for delivery. Um, I won't even say the name of the big retailer that that's I'm fine. not mentioning. Really. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Well, we're both in Southern California, so everything's been, you know, so shut down here that <laughs> hopefully there's something that, that out there that we're, you know, an alternate to that, that big name retailer where you could go find this book. <laughs> Thank you both for joining me today. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. Thank you, Lily. It's my pleasure.